You're listening to Good Lad Unscripted with your host. <laughs> Welcome back to Goodlad Unscripted, the podcast. I'm Terry Goodlad. I do not have a co-host today, but I do have a very, very special guest. Before we get into that conversation, today's show is brought to you by blackbean.coffee. That's the website, blackbean.coffee. It tastes really, really good. And also blessedbodywear.com. Tangie Johnson is my guest today. Tangie is uh, up in, I, I don't know, do we, is it still a war zone up there in Seattle? or we're, like You're not right in Seattle, or are you, are you Tangie? I'm about 15, 20 minutes away. Is it, is it like, okay, what we're getting, of course, in the media, depending on which media you talk to, of course, this is like, <laughs> you know, civilization has gone by the wayside. Is that the case or not really? <laughs> Um, it's an, it's an exaggeration, but things were very rough this summer. I mean, very rough, you know, it, yeah. it kind of felt like it was heading in that direction. Wow. Did you get scared? Like, how did it feel for you? Just, I mean, can you, you know, go about your, your, your daily stuff? Can you go to the grocery store and not feel, you know, afraid? So for me, yes, because I am not in the city. I'm about 20 minutes outside of the city. And so I'm actually a part of a totally different part of town okay. where the only impact for us was boarding up our business. You know, we have a chiropractic office and we had to board that up um, to prepare for the riots because, I mean, they were hitting all the cities. So it, it did kind of feel like a war zone for about a month there when, when the riots were weekly. Hmm. Summer. <laughs> Well, I know. I'm, I'm glad, uh, and hopefully we have seen an end to all that, but uh, of course we worry about you guys up there, but glad to know you're okay. Thank I, you. I want to introduce, uh, you know, I've known you for, we've known each other for many, many years, but you know, this is back in the fitness industry days, the, the famous Tangy Johnson, the, the fitness competitor. <laughs> uh, we met in 2001 when you turned pro. And we did a photo shoot. We did an all-night photo shoot in a in a, a re-what uh, would you call it? renovated uh, heritage home? I think it was in in Spokane. Yeah, remember that? I want to say I want to say it was like the Patsy Clark house. Yes, I think that like was a, it. Yeah, 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 it was a heritage house. And we shot there like literally all night. Yes, I remember that. The guy that was, was really wonderful. Special. Yeah, the guy was wonderful. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, you went on to be literally a legend in the IFBB, um, you know, for many, many years you competed. You competed for, you were pro. You, you told me that you competed, you started competing in 1997 and you retired in 2016. Yes. Now for a, a fitness athlete, now for those that are not familiar with fitness, uh, it's very different than what you see when you see the the women and you know it's it's not standing there doing the the bodybuilding poses and it's not standing there doing the you know the the bikini type poses where you know you turn around show them your butt and like that you're actually doing a fitness routine and they're extremely intense involved very very athletic things aren't they Tanji? Yes. <laughs> and so it, it was uh, like if you if you go to bodybuilding and and of course I've been beaten up severely for saying this, but the only thing athletic that actually happens at any kind of a bodybuilding show, it's a show except for the fitness routines. The fitness routines is actually where there is a tremendous amount of athletic ability, and for that reason, when figure started, 
uh, the new division started way back in, I think it was 2002, 2001, 2001, 2002. Um, and then they <clears throat> started the pro division in 2003. Uh, a lot of girls that were in fitness migrated over to figure and then fitness kind of struggled a little bit. And you were the one person that stood up and started a movement called save fitness. And you really, really emphasized fitness and bringing girls up and teaching them how to do it correctly. Of course, I'm telling your story now, but it was just an amazing, <laughs> it was just an amazing thing because you really became this, you know, on your own, on your own volition, just became this ambassador for fitness. And, and, uh, and still are to this day. I, I want to talk about your fitness career because you did something. It's, it's such a difficult, it's, it's not just getting in great shape, getting lean and like that, but it's that, that incredible amount of strength and agility that you have to have in order to do the fitness routines. And you did that. You competed for 15 years, right? professionally professionally as a pro for 15 years now at the pro level i mean you were you were among the very top one percent in the world for essentially that whole time right that just i you saying that just blows my mind <laughs> <laughs> but it's true right i mean you uh how many arnold's did you compete in arnold schwarzenegger classics did you compete in well, I com well when you think that um, lucky fortunate for me, I was invited my rookie year. So my rookie year, I turned pro in two thousand and one. Two thousand and two was my first professional year, and I earned an invitation because you you have to be invited to do the Arnold Classic competition. So I was invited that year, and pretty much was invited every year after that. So if you look at the span of my fifteen year career, I did fifteen years of Arnold, and then towards the end, Arnold started to Band, his brand and now he had them all over the world internationally and so my last year competing i think i did five five oh arnold classics you know gosh. from brazil australia hong kong europe and so when i think about some of the titles like the arnold classic europe and to think that i was the winner for that twice it's like all of europe i'm the winner of all of europe that is <laughs> yeah that's mind-blowing so it's, it's so great to get older and reminisce about what you did in your 20s, 30s and my, you know, early 40s. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy when you think about it. And I I covered the sport back then for, I was the guy that covered it for Oxygen Magazine, right? And, and so mm -hmm. I got to see basically from the very, very beginning of your pro career and followed it right through pretty much to the end. And for a lot of it, I got to write and tell that story. And I don't know if you knew this, but I was actually... There was a selection committee uh, for the Arnold Classic, uh, and and uh, you had to be selected. And there was a, a selection committee, and I was one of the six people that were on that selection committee. So in a very small way, Great. I can pat myself on the back for making sure that you made it to the Arnold every <laughs> year because you deserve to be there. But, <laughs> but that was the cool thing. I think, that, you know, for again, for people that are not in the fitness world, there's something called the Olympia, and that's like our Super Bowl, right? And, uh, and then there's the Arnold Classic. As a journalist, as a fan, uh, the fan following, the amount of people that go to the event itself, the number of athletes at the event, the Arnold is a far bigger, and in my opinion, a much better contest. I think the Olympia has that prestige because that's kind of 
our Super Bowl winner, you know, that's that's the the big champion of the year. But to me, it was always a lesser show compared to the Arnold. Did you see it that way, or how did you feel about competing it? I, I felt I I felt the same way. Yeah, there was just more prestige because it's attached to Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I mean, he's hit, just in him and of itself, he's such an icon and what he's been able to accomplish in athletics and entertainment and then politics. Right, and and with with. You know, with with the sport, the, the sport of fitness is of subjective. Bikini, the whole thing, bodybuilding, the whole thing is very subjective. And and of course, there's always rumors of politics and uh, and favoritism and things like that. And and so to qualify for the Olympia, you have to place in the top three. To qualify for the Arnold, you have to be selected by a committee. And uh, and all of those people on those committee, uh, nobody was supposed to know who they were, so that there wouldn't be any pressure on them. But you know myself and and some of the others that i knew that were on it you know we always selected based on who we thought were the most entertaining athletes the most consistent athletes the ones that treated their fans really well all of those things because really it is showbiz at that point by the time you get to the stage you're now in the entertainment business getting ready for the stage it's an athletic thing when you get there it's the entertainment business except for the fitness routine round which is (laughs) (laughs) Again, entertainment, but it's a very, very athletic thing. But you want to put on the best show possible, and you want your best people there. And so it was a selection process. And there really, you know, was, uh, you know, I'm certain at some level there was some politics involved there, but it was a much harder, you couldn't engineer it that way so easily. So for me, it was, to me, that was the, the top of the, you know, the, when I going to it every year and covering it and being there, it was the bigger event uh, as far as I was concerned. And, and I think a lot of other athletes saw it that way as well. However, the Olympia, it's the prestige of the Olympia, correct? Right. Exactly. You, you saw it that way? Yes. Now, how many Olympias did you compete in? So let's see, I guess 13, because the only two times I did it was when I had injuries. <laughs> right. Now, speaking of those injuries, let's talk about that because you had some pretty severe injuries. I mean, what most athletes would consider career-ending injuries. Uh, the first one was your torn Achilles. The other one was an ACL. Now, the the Achilles, and the crazy thing is, is you came back after that and still won uh, major titles, didn't you? I did. You know, I, I was very fortunate. You know, when you feel like you're I wasn't ready for my career to be over. I had just gotten started. In fact, that was 2003. So I had competed one year professionally, hit the ground running. I, my very second, my first pro show, I got seventh at the Arnold, which was, which was very respectable for a newbie, and then turned around and won my first pro show as my second pro show in the first year. So I kind of won rookie of the year and then, yeah, I was ready to go for the second year coming into the Arnold Classic and the Monday before the show, you know, and fitness athletes are very depleted athletes. You know, we tend to overtrain and we're getting very, very lean. So of course to do that, you cut your calories and you're in a deficit for typically long periods of time. And it was a Monday night and I was going to do one last rehearsal of my routine at the 24 hour fitness on a hard floor. And I was running my routine. I did, ran and did my, you know, round off back handspring, back tuck, and took, a, took the tuck up nice in the air. And when I landed on the ground, boom, my Achilles popped. And I had a partial tear. 
Now, I, so, I've torn muscles before, but nothing of that magnitude, nothing as devastating as an Achilles, uh, because uh, maybe talk a little bit about, about the injury. And, and again, your husband's a chiropractor. You, you know, you've got a good understanding of that injury. Talk about that injury. And, and the, and I think the, the low probability of coming back and actually even walking correctly, let, let alone competing and competing in that sport and doing so well. Well, ironically, I'd been so spoiled from being in my 20s and being, you know, unstoppable and in incredible <laughs> shape that I had never dealt with injuries. And, you know, I don't even think I even knew what an Achilles was when I when I when I slammed on the ground, I heard a pop and I just kind of stopped because I knew something was wrong, but my body was in shock. So I didn't necessarily feel the pain yet. And I just I sat down because I what I felt was the sensation of it would be as if your your shoe popped off your heel. That's what it felt oh, like wow. when I hit the ground. Wow. And I actually, the other sensation I felt was I thought that my foot had punctured the wood in the floor. Like I thought my foot literally went through the wood. And I looked down and, the you know, the, my feet seemed like they were intact. My shoe was on and the floor was intact. And I thought, okay, something's going on internally. I sat down and, and people had been watching me. So they all come running over. And a massage therapist started touching my ankle and she just looked at me and said, sweetie, you, I think you tore your Achilles. <laughs> and I was like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and so then I go and I touch my ankle. Now, if everybody listening to this would just feel the tendon on their ankle right now, you know, we're, we have a pretty thick, that thick muscle that you feel, that tendon is your Achilles. And imagine that you don't feel anything when you put your hand behind your ankle. That's kind of weird, right? Wow. So that is how I felt. And I knew I was in trouble. I mean, I, I still was hopeful. I remember when she said that, I said, well, do you think I can be okay by Friday? <laughs> <laughs> oh the quintessential God. athlete, right? Oh my gosh. And then she was like, uh, she just looked at me and was like, no, sweetie, you're going to have to have surgery. And then, you know, I just, I won't, I'll never forget. That's when I started crying. Like I had never been injured before and left alone. I'm going to have to have a surgery you know, and, and then for it to happen four days before the big event, it's like, I was so close and, you know, I'm coming off of the momentum of a great rookie year. And I just remember how devastating it felt to not only be disappointed that all the hard work I just invested in the months prior to prepare had just come to a screeching halt and there was nothing I could do about it. Like it wasn't, you know, it was, it was bad. Like I was definitely going to have to have surgery. So yeah, that was very, that was very disappointing. You know, how do you now? I remember talking to you during that time, and I remember when you first did it, you didn't want to talk very much, and and but we did talk after. And uh, the coming back part, I, I know there's a physical aspect to it, but everybody I talk to, um, same thing with knees is uh, because you tore your ACL later, and I want to talk about that in a second, how that happened, but coming back from those injuries like that, is it more mental? Or was it more physical for you? Cause most people that I talk to, it's more of a mental thing, especially getting back and wanting to risk jumping around and, and functioning at the level that you function at as a professional athlete. I would say definitely it's very mental. And I, I looking back and reflecting, I, I saw that I tapped into two different strengths. You know, one strength, I have the strength of hope. So I tend to have that mindset where I believe all things are possible. And then my other strength was that competitive drive. So when I'm talking to my surgeon, 
you know, after the surgery, and he's giving me the typical rundown of, okay, you're probably not going to do gymnastics for over a year. And I thought, really? Okay. So boom, right there, that was a competition. <laughs> I was like, okay, who says a year? It's going to be less than a year. I didn't know how soon I could do it, but shockingly, I, I was tumbling in six months after that. And so the, the competitive, my competitive nature just made me very prudent about my recovery and my physical therapy and my getting my mobility back. So everything you're supposed to do post-surgery, even when it comes down to don't do anything for two weeks, sit your butt down, rest, you know, let the scar tissue heal. Okay, now it's time to go into your physical therapy. Now you even have to take your knee or um, now I'm thinking about my knee. You're going to take your ankle through that range of motion. You're going to have to get rolfing done to break down the scar tissue. So whatever it took, whatever had to be done, I did it. And, and as I was healing, you know, I felt like I was above, um, above schedule as far as like, wow, I'm getting more mobility back. I'm getting my strength back. And then that's just when I started setting goals, like I, I'm going to make it back. I'm going to make it back to the Olympia and I'm going to, you know, be tumbling and, you know, everything. I did everything faster than he said I was going to do it. And I, I'm trying to remember, but I, that happened in February and I didn't quite make it back that Olympia because I remember volunteering to work, but then I was, I was ready to go for the next Arnold. So literally less than, I mean, pretty much I was able to compete a year later, but I was preparing with tumbling and jogging and doing all of that probably eight months in. And see, it's, it's, it's not just competing, but you're competing at, you, you're at the very top in the world at what you did. So that, that's right. what, it, that's what it's just, uh, it just blows my mind when I think about it. Let's talk about the knee now, how'd that happen? And, and how, how did the knee happen, Tanji? And also, was it more discouraging having a second major catastrophic injury? Or was it like familiar territory and you had more confidence going into the rehab part? You know, I was more confident going into the rehab part but it was just as devastating because I swear to goodness, I swear that I feel like when people get injured, a lot of times it's right before the pinnacle of opportunity, right? right, right. Like things are going well and you're gaining momentum and all of a sudden you get hurt and you're like, really? And so what, <laughs> what happened to me is I, I mean, I never would have dreamed that this would ever happen for me, but I, you know, got casted um, on NBC's American Gladiators, and I was casted as stealth. So here I am. I am now becoming like a quote-unquote action figure movie star on in, you know Monday Night TV prime time. And I in the in the season in the first season that we're filming, I tore my ACL in one of the events where everybody remembers the pyramid event where the gladiator has to chase the competitor and keep them from getting to the top. And so I was in a battle with a contestant and um, she, she did this football trick on me where I was leaning, I was over her, standing over her and I kind of leaned over her and she grabbed my arm, pulled me forward. So I started falling down the pyramid and had to chase her back up. And when I, I finally got her, she was so close to hitting the buzzer, but my competitive was side was like, Oh no way. I will never <laughs> let her touch that buzzer. Right. So I am, pulling on her leg, pulling so hard. Now understand that this pyramid now is made of big, fat, um, Velcroed, basically like foam, right? Foam big blocks. old mats, like huge, those mat blocks. 
And so I pulled her so hard that we both kind of flung off. And then I go almost diving down this pyramid and, you know, this will make you cringe, but my leg, you know, got caught on one of the foam mats and it hyperextended my knee on my fall down. And everybody on TV saw it because as soon as I, you know, I tumbled down the pyramid and I grabbed my knee and, you know, I can, I can indulge a little bit about TV, but you know, the way they film TV, they don't, TV is not filmed linearly. It's typically filmed in blocks. And so even though I got hurt on my third day, I, I actually got hurt in like episode four, but I had filmed some parts of episode seven. So they, they could not um, make it an obvious thing because it just wouldn't make sense that if I'm injured, how am I showing up in episodes that are after the injury? Right. And so they basically had to hide my injury, which um, was, it was really hard because I got injured on the set, on, on the show. And then the next day we're filming the freaking introduction. And so, you know, typically what, so if you ever remember American Gladiators and when you've got Layla Ali and, and, oh my goodness, I can't forget his name, the wrestler. Um, he was our host. I, I know Layla who you're talking Ali. about, I can't think of his name either. Hulk Hogan, right? Yes, yes. So yes. If, if you guys can remember those guys coming out and introducing the gladiators and most of the girls are doing, like Beth Horn is doing flips and an aerial and, and here I am basically can barely even walk. And I'm just throwing up my arms like, woohoo! And I'm in so much pain trying to walk on that leg with a torn ACL, you know? So for me, the injury itself and the timing of the injury was so devastating because it prevented me from coming back to season two of American Gladiators. And I had, you know, I had left Washington, you know, I had given up a lot and I thought I was going straight Hollywood. I mean, that brand had the intention of going on tour, I mean, we really thought that what the gladiators did in the eighties, we were going to bring that back and it was going to just be a long-term thing. And so I was very disappointed to feel like I had just gotten branded as the character and I had such a short stint and then boom, I'm injured. And I, and so I I took that same competitive drive and tried to, um, and worked on rehabbing myself to be ready for the second season. And now I realize this is the kind of pressure that athletes feel because I remember thinking, God, all it's going to take is for somebody to tackle me in one of the events and I'd be an idiot. I'm going to tear my ACL again. But in my mind, I was willing to take that risk because that's how bad I wanted to get back on the show. Wow. And I think about that all the time with other sports and other athletes, how they return probably sooner than they should because they just, they don't want to lose the opportunity. Right. I knew if I didn't make it back for season two, they were going to cast a new character because, I mean, this is part of what I learned about Hollywood. It's pretty cutthroat, you know, yeah. um, and, and that, that would be it. That would be it. And, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, you know, the show never made it past season two. But I just remember that for me, I had a level of depression that followed that injury much more than I did the first time when I was competing in the IFBB. Because it was at least with the IFBB, you know, I took a year off, came back and business as usual with this. I, I just knew that that was it. Like I was going to lose my contract and, and it was going to be really hard to come back. How did you deal with that? So for me, you know, I went through a short period of depression, but it's, it's kind of how I've dealt with anything when, when you don't get what you want and you're disappointed, you know, 
Well, you, you just have to have perspective. You have to realize that that one opportunity or whatever it is that you're disappointed about, you have to have that perspective that the world and that life is much bigger than that. And that that was just a piece. So if you don't get that one piece, move on and find your next piece. But the worst thing you can do is not find that next piece. Right. Now, where did you go after that? Because, you know, we sort of jet forward to where to where you are now. And, uh, and I remember when you're on TV, and I remember, you know, I got to be a part of your whole competitive career. And it was very long, very successful, you were consistently at the very top of your sport. And I think, you know, had the wind blown in another direction politically, I think you put, could have easily been a champion for your whole entire career because you did start really at the very top and, and it never, you never, it never degraded over time. You know, it, you left on top. And, and so I think about that and, and I think about going on to the TV thing and then boom, everything kind of just sort of came to an end. Uh, how did you Talk about that transition, Tanji, where that very public, very famous life, a lot of people knew what you were doing in the fitness industry, you were an icon, and then, you know, being on TV and and then doing so much and being so much in the forefront with fitness uh, across the country and around the world, uh, and then to where you are now, how was that transition at first for you, and how, how have you mitigated that now? So when it comes to, you know, it's funny because I do credit my faith and my foundation for my identity and who I believe I am and where I put my treasures. That foundation basically made my transition very, I wouldn't say easy, but I was just able to float through my transition with ease because certain things, you know, like, like this is a great example, fame, right? So I was able to gain a certain level of fame within my fitness industry. So that meant that every time I went somewhere, I couldn't even walk through the Olympia crowd or go through the Arnold Expo without somebody stopping me every five minutes to take pictures of me, right? Or to get my autograph or to talk to me. And and it's a very overwhelming type of life when everybody knows who you are. And And even though people think that that's fun, you know, what I also could sense is, especially in today's society where we're all taking selfies and, and everything is about Instagram. I remember feeling that those, a lot of those interactions felt very inauthentic to me, meaning that people would come up to me and they would, they would barely even say hi. They would just say, can I get a picture with you? And then they would get their picture and then they're gone. And I'm thinking like, hi, bye. What's your name? And where are you from? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yes. I'm such a, I'm, I'm in my soul. I am a connector and I love, people, you know? So when I, there were times where I just felt used as a celebrity. It's just like, I'm just being used to take a picture and to make somebody else look good or to make someone else look popular. And so there were those aspects of the fame lifestyle that I just did not um, worship, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I remember, um, I'll always remember, you know, for example, um, I became good friends with Brandy and Brandon Curry, Brandy Lieber and Brandon Curry. And I would just remember like when we, we would always be at the same places competing and I would say, Hey guys, where are you guys going after dinner? Let's do dinner after the Olympia. Let's do dinner after the Arnold. And I didn't need to be at the after parties. I didn't need to, I didn't want to be where everybody was going to recognize me. I really just craved, I wanted to spend some quality time with people I really care about and people that really care about me and have quality time. 
And so I noticed that, you know, in my early careers, you know, initially it's like, oh, this is so exciting. Oh my gosh. You know, I feel like I'm getting famous. And then by the end of my career, (laughs) I just felt, I just felt really grounded. I felt grounded. Like I was in all of what I, my body was able to do after all those years. I had such gratitude for the opportunity that this industry gave me. I was, thankful for um, being able to have a vehicle to explore my entrepreneurship. So I had all those great feelings. And when I retired, I was so ready. I actually felt like Muhammad Ali, where I probably should have retired a couple years prior, but I just couldn't give up that international travel because that's a passion of mine. But I definitely felt like I had already passed my prime. And my body was barely holding on to being able to constantly go through the diet and then beat my body up doing the fitness. So for me, retiring was like a relief. You know, that part for me was smooth. I was ready to say, okay, I'm ready for my next chapter. What was hard for me is my plans for my next chapter didn't happen the way that I suspected, you know. And so I had to deal with that and I had some depression over that because I was going to transition from this awesome career in fitness and then I was going to start my family. You know, I got married a year later. So that part happened, which is great. And then, you know, Brandon, I just thought I was going to have kids, at least one or two. And I wanted to, that was one of the things I looked forward to with retiring is taking my focus and creating more balance in my life and, and creating the family. And then that never happened. You know, and so I went through a couple of years of a lag where, okay, now what do I do? Because, you know, this is something I can't control the way that I could have controlled so many other things in business and on athletics. Right. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't one of those, okay, well, maybe just wait a year and your body's going to be better or try this different approach. You know, for me with fertility, it, it, there was so much out of my control. And, and now I'm happy to say, you know, what is it, three or four years later, even though I'm still on that fertility journal journey, that the only reason why now I'm not depressed is because I'm, I've been open to changing the narrative of what me having what I want is going to look like. When it was limited to flesh and blood, I'm going to have a biological child, mm-hmm. you know, that's where I couldn't thrive because it just wasn't happening for me and it was out of my control. And now that I've changed that narrative and I'm more open to, you know, the thing that I care about the most is having a family and being a mother and raising a child with my, my husband, that is totally still in the cards for me. I just have to change my narrative. And I know you and Anna know everything about that, you know, and that's why it's been an inspiration to be a part of your life as you guys walk through your journey, because, you know, the, all the talks I've had with Anna, like it, it was part of my healing. And, and helping me open my eyes to living bigger and being open to more. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, you know, I've got biological children and, uh, on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, we adopt Cole at eight 30 in the morning. Yep. Uh, oh my that gosh. would be our third, actually our fourth adoption this year. One was an adult, uh, Quamaine's mom. We adopted her as well. And, uh, and so, uh, for me, it's, you know, when you're raising these kids, and I think that's, you know, just 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 to cut all the fat away and just get right down to brass tacks, I think the struggle a lot of people have is they wonder if they can love a child that is not their biological child. They're not their flesh and blood. And, and it's probably an individual thing, but the reality is this, is that if you love children, period, uh, yeah. 
you know, you have these children and you're with them every day and you build a relationship. And I love my children as if they are my flesh and blood. There's no, there's no difference to me. Um, yeah. You just love these kids, you know, and, uh, and Quamaine, Quamaine's African-American, I'm white, you know, and so, the, but, but with him, it's funny now because he's reunited with his mom and, and now his father is, is able to see him and like that. And, and he called me and he told me that he's got two dads now and, and his <laughs> one just, no, but it's funny, Tangie, because, you know, you're part African-American yourself and you, you'll appreciate yeah. this, I think, is, uh, is that he said dad now i got two dads i got one with hair and one without <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that, that was how he did that's how he distinguishes between the two right and it's just oh, i just God. i just wanted to hug him you know like i just uh oh, fell in love with that kid all over again because you know he's <laughs> you know he is he is my son you know mm-hmm. but of course he's got a biological father and he really does have two dads as far as he's concerned and and yeah. uh, and so it's it's very very possible it's not you know when you when you go beyond if you have the capacity to love a child now some people have children for all the wrong reasons and and maybe it it would be an issue and some people it just might be an issue. They just want the biological child and that's their dream and then they won't settle for anything else. But if it's about loving and raising a child, oh my gosh, there's so many kids out there that need homes. You know, we get calls uh, because we started in the foster system four years ago. You know, we've kind of quote unquote paid our dues. We've been foster parents and we've had some really rough cases and like that. And so now that we are experienced, you know, we are, uh, you know, a, a proven resource as an adoptive resource for kids. And, and we're getting calls off. I mean, we just got one yesterday, you know, and it's from a friend of a friend actually. And, and, uh, the mother passed away. Dad's not available to be there. Grandparents are too old and can't look after this child. And, you know, they're looking for a home for this little boy. And, and so it's just, this is just something that happens all the time. And there's so much of that. And, and if it's in your heart to do it, you know, it's, it's, uh, whether it's in vitro or it's a, a surrogate or there's so many options, you know, you just have to, like you say, you know, you just change your, you know, what you, your way of thinking and way of viewing it. But, uh, if they're, they're children, you know, how do you not love exactly. them? How do you not bond with them? How do you not, you know, you still have all the same experiences with them. And at the right. end of the day, all my kids care about is if I'm there and, you know, they, they want to learn and they want to make you happy and they want to share life with you and that's it. <laughs> and and it's just, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an incredible experience. So, but uh, I, again, now I want to go back. You've made this massive, massive shift uh, and your story, it, it's a, uh, I, I don't know if it's uh, like you've had so much horrible tragedy, yet you've also had these incredible peaks, you know, where you've been famous, you've been, you know, the, the top in your sport for years, you know, you've, all of these things, but you've had these horrible, horrible disappointments as well. And, and here you are now, uh, and, and I, I know you've got a lot of things going on, you've got business going on and things like that, you've got family, you're working on that. How do you manage when you've been that high, how do you manage mentally? Now you've talked about discipline. 
But on your darkest days, Tanji, what are you saying to yourself when you wake up in the morning and this isn't working out, whether it's a relationship or kids or business or whatever it is? Because right now there's so many people, I think, this year, Anna and I included, you know, we we lost gosh, our life savings. We lost our life savings this year. You know, we're, we're digging ourselves out and I'm 61 and I'm starting at zero basically. Right. And you just get discouraged some days. And, and right. then there's somebody like you that, you know, it, it's not like, like when you fell, you fell a long, 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 long way. Like you say, you know, you, you lose your opportunity at, at a dream. Right. And you've right. had that, you face that many, many times. How do you, that, that more, when you get up in that morning, what are you saying to yourself? How are you encouraging well, yourself to get out of bed and move on and, and dream again? Well, I know for me, it's funny when you say in that morning, because for me, I was like, well, that morning lasted for me for about two to three years. So <laughs> a big part of, you know, I knew I needed to walk through this and I just did it. And what, what I mean by that is I knew I was coming from a super high rated, just fast paced life where I mean, I'm, my life might as well have been on crack as far as all the exciting travel and all the events and, and everything. I had like my perfect body and I, and it just, I was at the athletic peak and was making a lot of money and all these things are, you know, firing on all these cylinders. And so when I retired, you know, I knew it was time to retire because it was definitely time for the next chapter. I just didn't know exactly what that next chapter was going to be. And, and when it, and it, when the family chapter didn't happen right away, I kind of realized like, oh shit, you know, I planned for plan A. I didn't really have a plan B or C and A is not working out. What am I going to do now? And the probably the best thing I did was I resisted to urge the urge to just do something and do a test. And I told myself, I know God wants me to sit still for the first time in a long time <laughs> right? and just reflect, like reflect and pay attention Pay attention to who you are. Pay attention to what you've done. Learn from the past. What do you want for the future? Explore, you know? And so I would have those moments where it's just like, okay, financially and career-wise, it's like, gosh, maybe I should just go work for Boeing or Microsoft. I mean, I'm an Air Force Academy graduate. You know, I could probably get a corporate job, especially anything dealing with management or leadership, and I can roll into that right away. And I just thought, no, that just doesn't feel true to who I am, you know? And then, uh, and then I didn't want to give up my autonomy and my flexibility and my time. And, and, and honestly, I was really just thinking, what is it that matters to me? And so I went through a, um, years of just reflecting and reestablishing, okay, what are my values? What are my priorities? And right now, you know, I, one of the things I want the most is I just want more time. You know, we only get 24 hours in a day, but how you leverage your time matters. It matters with, you know, how many hours are you working a week? What, what does that give you left over for your life? Is that, are you okay with that? And I have big dreams of, you know, writing a book and starting my nonprofit and getting into politics and all of those things require time. And so I'm not really in a hurry to just get back to a third career where I'm basically hustling and working all the time. Like I was when I was competing and building my business. And I think about experiences, you know, what experiences do I want to have? Who do I want to be with? Who do I want to be raising? What, what friends am I going to be building life with? And so I think about time, experiences, impact, 
impact. How do I want to leave this earth? What impact do I want to make? I made an impact in the military. I made an impact on the fitness industry. How will I impact the world next? And finally, just having more joy. And joy to me is, is a lot about mindfulness and where your mindset is because you can have joy with the right mindset in the same circumstances, right? Like I, I, I voted on Tuesday and I know that everybody was around me was freaking out and super anxious. And, and I, was, I was anxious to find out the result. But I, I remember that day and I thought to myself, I'm so happy. Like I feel good. I'm like, I voted. I did my part. And honestly, Whatever happens, this is what motivates me to inject myself into the future. And that in and of itself gave me joy, just knowing that I'm always focused on what I can do, you know, about any situation. And so I would say that I took that time to really think about those four things. And then the decisions that I started to make for my life in the past year, they are all in alignment with those priorities of wanting more of my time, creating certain experiences. What I do, is it making an impact and does it give me joy? And that has brought me to where I am today, focusing on those things. But honestly, Terry, I needed two to three years to really figure out what that was and to detach myself from my past because honestly, I was too busy to be thinking about these these things because I was too busy living that life and being that person and, and just thriving off of that success, I didn't really have time to sit down, be quiet, meditate, and have that aha moment of, all right, this is who I am, and this is where I'm going next. That's really wise. And, and honestly, I don't know that I can add anything. I think we've got to leave it at that. Well, I can't wait, girl, until you come out with your book. You need to write that book. Uh, if, if I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave links to uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, uh, or if they want to follow you on any social media, we'll put links in the description below. Thank you, Tanji. We need to talk again. I, I know you're a firebrand, and you're gonna be doing a lot of amazing things. And I, I we'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening. We'll be back Thank in a couple of days with another episode. Thanks, Terry.